Dr. Chris Leot wasn't planning to ride that day. He'd been working long hours and he was just too tired to do any sort of hard riding. But even though he was too tired to participate, he still wanted to watch the other riders. So he became a spectator as he watched at a few corners and made his way around the familiar scene. He stopped to chat for a moment when somebody came down the hill and said that a rider had crashed up the mountain hard. So along with a paramedic, he jumps into a truck and goes off to help. What he found on that hill that day caused him to rethink everything. His life, his vocation, his riding, and it sent him on a quest that would ultimately change more riders' lives than you can count. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Young Sam Manicot. Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Bill Bordeaux. Helga Pettis. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. I'm Marissa Notier, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com. On the first segment today, we're going on a bit of a journey. We're going to explore a story about how a rider, Dr. Chris Leott, was inspired to change the world of motorcycling by innovating the neck brace, making riding safer. But there's so much more here that as a rider, I I find fascinating and surprising about what we're talking about, and and especially safety gear. It's the stuff that just isn't obvious until you really dig into it. And of course, you have to talk with an expert. Now, a while ago, we did an episode on air vests. And through that, we learned that air vests have neck support in them, a neck support system. So one would think that with air vests, that uh, that would sort of replace a neck brace. But not so fast. After speaking with Dr. Liet and considering the air vest episode, there's some considerations here before embracing one or the other. Now, in the second segment coming up, we're going to speak with a guy, well, actually the guy behind the scenes of the Dakar that determines the rules for racers and what's required as far as safety goes, or at least including rather what's required for safety gear. Um, a while back, I was told by somebody involved in the, in Dakar racing that the rules, uh, they mentioned that the rule had just been changed and that motorcyclists were required to wear air vests. It became mandatory, but, but in requiring the rider to wear this air vest, they could no longer wear a neck brace because you can't wear the both of them. And apparently some riders were very upset with this new rule. So I thought, well, I'll just, dig into this. So we want to speak to to somebody, well, the source, the expert at Dakar to find out a little more. That's coming up in the second segment. So make sure you've got some time here. Sit back, listen to the whole thing. Okay, so my name is Chris Neert. I come from a little town called Stellenbosch, just outside Cape Town in South Africa. Uh, my training is in medicine. 
I studied at the University of Cape Town and was specialising at the University of Stellenbosch uh, and worked at the Tigerberg Academic Hospital until such time as I started the neck brace. I spent most of my time now on impact biomechanics, uh, injury prevention uh, and protective apparel design and innovation. Chris, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you, Jim. I want to start in 2001, that weekend, um, when, you, uh, when you went there, went to watch the motocross race. Can you just talk about that? So in 2001, I was um, in the midst of specializing um, and uh, obviously was working lots of long hours. Uh, and on the particular weekend, I traveled to an enduro event uh, in in a mountainous region about an hour and a half outside of Cape Town, a little town called Robertson. Uh, and with me was my four-year-old son. Uh, and interestingly, two years, not two years, two, two weeks prior to uh, going to this event, uh, my son Matthew, who was four at the time, had ridden a little uh, PB50 uh, and absolutely loved it tore up and down the road and I thought, my goodness, yeah, I've got a hooligan on, on my hands. <laughs> um, and uh, so Matthew was with me at this event and I, I was too sort of uh, post-call and tired to to ride myself. Um, and I'd been watching in a few corners and I happened to be walking through the parking lot where uh, a paramedic who I saw from time to time dropping patients off at the hospital, uh, we sort of said hello and at that point in time, some, one of the riders came down uh, a little hill and indicated to the paramedic that somebody had fallen off and looked in serious condition. So uh, ultimately, uh, myself, Matthew, the paramedic, climbed into a 4 by 4 vehicle and off uh, we went up the hill. Uh, and there we found um, a fallen rider, Alan Selby, who I suspected had a fairly low speed gone over the handlebars and landed head first. And I suspected he'd broken his neck and unfortunately uh, he wasn't breathing, no pulse. So uh, with all the right equipment, we tried to resuscitate him. Um, and I went through the protocol a few times and then ultimately decided that um, he, he couldn't be resuscitated. So we brought uh, Alan's body back down the mountain uh, in the vehicle with us. And of course, at that point in time, I had to tell Alan's wife, who had uh, young children, uh, that uh, her husband had passed away from what I suspected was a neck injury. So that was obviously a very dramatic event, and, and I'd, I'd known Alan uh, not hugely well, but I'd ridden with him before. Um, and what I elected to do was talk to the coroner uh, after the weekend and establish exactly uh, what... Uh, Alan's injuries were, and they confirmed that, in fact, it was a two-part neck fracture. And it's at that point in time that I already reflected on the fact that I've just sent my, my young son riding. So I said to him, sort of naively at the time, uh, you're not going to ride until I find some neck protection for you. Uh, of course, uh, there was nothing to find, so I, I had to develop it myself. Well, that's the task that I set myself. Well, how old was your son at this time? So he was four years, four years old. Four years old. Now you're, you're a medical doctor. What were you doing as a medical doctor at that point? So at that point in time, I was halfway through a, a surgical discipline that um, I'd been waiting for a post in neurosurgery for some time. Uh, I'd done a bit of orthopedics and general surgery waiting for a post. Uh, 
And so I was halfway through specializing and it really changed my life. Back on that hill, when Alan Selby, you said he, he's, he's dead at that point. There's nothing you can do and you're coming back down. Because you were a rider up to this point. How do you think about riding and racing? Does it change the way you, you picture it? Does it change the way you feel about it? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. Um, and I guess if you ask uh, motorcyclists how they feel about the, the risk, uh, the innate risk, uh, you know, I think people accept that there's an innate risk. That doesn't mean we shouldn't um, adopt strategies that's going to mitigate the, the risk. And I think although um, I, I pride myself in being a reasonably fast rider from time to time in my life, um, I, I'm, I'm sort of a thinking rider. So I'll push the limits, but uh, I, I think quite carefully about, um, you know, not doing it in a, in a reckless fashion. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, great question. Uh, I certainly thought, how can I put my son in harm's way? Uh, and that uh, sort of stopped me in my tracks. And I said to Matthew, you know, you're not, you're not riding again until I find a solution, of course. Matthew, your son, he had just started riding the weekend before. When this happens, you are sort of reawakened. It's not like you didn't know it before. You didn't know the, the risks because, you know, everyone who's in motorcycling understands that. But that drove it home for you enough to say to your son, he's not going to ride. You're, you're protecting your son. Correct. I mean, I stopped riding for a while as well. When you were a kid, you had approached your parents. I think you, you went to watch a race. You approached your parents to put some money, I guess, it was that was set aside for a vacation, put it into a motorcycle. And at that time, your dad, trying to protect his son, said to you, do this first and then we'll talk. What was that? Can you describe what happened there? <laughs> uh, exactly. Um, yeah, my, my father's a philosopher and um, I think he, he was bang on in terms of his approach. He said, well, let's go to a spinal unit uh, and you can job shadow uh, for a month. And if you still want to ride after seeing uh, people in a spinal unit, uh, some of which had been um, injuries caused by motorcycle accidents, uh, then sure. But until such time, the answer is no. Um, and of course, I got to, to the end of the month. Um, and, I, and I guess that sort of may have been where my fascination for medicine started. Uh, but I certainly wasn't cured of riding. And you were 15 at the time? Oh, yeah. I was young. So you, you're, what are you doing? You're going in and helping with rehabilitation with them? Well, what, what I actually did is I, I was um, fortunate enough to to tag along on some ward rounds and, and sort of stand at the back of the, the room and, and, and see uh, the discussions and the clinical discussions on patients um, uh, and then just helped uh, with the nursing staff. Um, you know, I got to see quite, quite a wide uh, variety of, of the implications of, of spinal injuries. Did any of it scare you? Uh of course, I mean it's it uh, terrifies you. you. You know you don't want you most certainly don't want to to end up uh, with a, with a neurological lesion. But then, of course, you also can't uh, wrap yourself in cotton wool and miss life. And uh, for whatever for whatever reason, um, 
uh, you know, my, my parents certainly weren't daredevils. Um, I've inherited um, some most peculiar genes when it comes to uh, risk-taking behavior. You know, I... <laughs> Unlike your parents, you mean. <laughs> I've, I've, I've raced motorcycles uh, both on, um, on the track superbikes and, uh, and, and off-road. In fact, I'm, I'm riding an R1 at the moment uh, on the track. Um, just track days now, I'm, I'm really trying not to end up uh, back with a, with a number board on the front of it. Um, my son and I have a race car, which we use at track days. Um, I, I, I participate actively in aerobatics, uh, probably fly aerobatics three, four times a week. So, um, yeah, I mean, I certainly am, am not risk averse, but uh, I, I, I like to think that I think things through quite well before I, before I take on a risk. So the stint in the spinal ward didn't t- deter you from riding like your father had hoped and, and t- intended with the whole thing, but it, you said it may have spurred on your interest in medicine. It did. You know, when I was, when I was at school, uh, I, w- I was never really sure what I wanted to study. And in South Africa, we, we were all conscripted to the army for two years of national service um, around the, the, the time that uh, I finished school. In fact, I think I was the third last intake. And it was really luck of the draw as to where you ended up if you hadn't trained. So I went from school to do my national service first because I, I just wanted to some time to reflect and, and make a decision on my future career. And perchance, uh, I did an infantry basics and then I ended up in, in the medical corps. Um, and I really met a fantastic bunch of um, national service doctors who took me under their wing. Um, and I spent a lot of time with them uh, and uh, as a theatre assistant uh, on the ships uh, as a medic. And that's when my love for medicine really uh, started. So I probably spent about eight years in, in uh, clinical practice. I, I did my internship. I worked in general medicine for a while. Uh, then I went back to, to hospital practice and uh, did uh, trauma medicine and then a bit of orthopedics and then neurosurgery. So I, I, I did a fair stint, uh, but um, certainly when I, f- I finished, I mean, I love medicine and I absolutely loved uh, the theatre and it was just what – uh, drove me and um, and uh, I think was the right uh, uh, career choice for me. But Alan Selby's uh, passing really changed everything for me. When you dealt with Alan on the hill and and he is dead at that point, you pull your son from racing. That that stops you. That was a wake up. Correct. Absolutely. Why? Um, you know, I think the, the, the day uh, your, your child is born, everything changes um, and life is never the same again. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't put him at, at uh, risk. You know, I could, at, at my age, intellectualize the risk, um, but I didn't want him to take the risk. When you're on the hill that day, when, the, when this whole incident happened, did you think of your dad and what he did? Um, no, that that happened uh, that happened later. Uh, I certainly considered his uh, his role in um, in in the evolution of my life at a later stage. Uh, but at that point in time, uh, it was more kind of you know just how real this was and how real this was for myself and Matthew. 
back at the time when, when you said that, you, you know, when this happened, you decided you wanted to do something about this. You wanted to find something. I guess you were hoping there was something out there. To, I mean, you were in racing, though. You must have known what was sort of available at the time. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but but remember, South Africa was, uh, you know, quite um, isolated at that point in time. And quite difficult for us to find um, overseas uh, uh, product. You know, what, what used to happen is that if you were really good in South Africa, you used to try and find a way to make a career for yourself other in the USA or in, in Europe. Um, but very little product came back to South Africa. And I think we were always behind the trend. Um, so, you know, we'd seen foam collars and, and nothing else. Uh, and when I, when I went looking, um, I, I couldn't find anything else other than foam collars, which was subsequently demonstrated may actually be worse for you than nothing at all. Um, so yeah, that was the, the catalyst for, for, for a start. So foam collars, that, that's the, just looks like a, almost a, uh, a squared off tube that you're putting around your neck with kind of Velcro. Is that, that's what it is? Correct. Correct. Well, let's go back to, to the idea of figuring out what's going on here. So what was it you were trying to accomplish? What was it you, were, you set out to do? So, I mean, the, the initial thesis was to try, by using an alternative low path, reduce the injury uh, the injuries, both in severity and quantum. So we, we, we were looking to mitigate the risk of neck injuries and primarily neck, not the rest of the spine. Um, either reduce their severity or reduce their incidence. So are you looking at all ways? I mean, are you looking at ways to hold people on the motorcycle or make the, the motorcycle more protective? Or are you talking about, did you focus just on the impact? I focused on the impact and what really, um, a few things gave me uh, the idea. One was uh, sort of the mechanism of causation. So after doing some research onto how neck injuries occurred, there was obviously commonality. So axial forces and torque or bending moments on the neck is what produced uh, in the most part neck injuries. Uh, and then looking at uh, advancements in automotive uh, engineering, looking at self-aligning head restraints um, and, and seat belts uh, in a way to try and limit head excursion um, and of course, uh, the advantage of these self-aligning head restraints, uh, for example, Volvo was, uh, was um, you know, one of the primary developers of advanced automotive safety. It occurred to me that you really needed to have a safety device with you at, uh, at, uh, at all times and also positioned in, this, in a way that if, if uh, an impact did occur, that that device was there and ready uh, to act. So... Here, this is, a, is this is a semi-rigid structure around your neck that's always there and always in the right place. And on an extreme head movement, makes contact and unloads the neck to in a part. What kind of neck injuries are the most common? What are, what are we looking at? So a C5 to C7 uh, is, is a common area of the neck. Uh, T7 in the in the in the back is a common area of injury, um, and. Right when I was developing the product, um, you know, very early on, uh, BMW approached me to to look at what I was doing and to come and test it at their facility in, in Munich. Um, and what was happening there, much like uh, a lot of the injuries we were seeing in motocross, is there were hyperextension type injuries. So the he head is forced backwards and down. You must remember that when a rider falls, 
um, he, he, it's the weight of their torso that is actually the momentum causing the injury. Um, in a car, you're strapped in uh, with, a, with, a, with a harness or a seatbelt that's restraining you in the seat. So when you hit an obstacle, your, your neck elongates. It gets long, longer and there's tension in your neck. So, so in the automotive uh, industry, everything is stretching and lengthening and, and that's called tension. However, when you fall on a motorcycle and you land on your head, Everything's compression. So it's compression flexion, compression extension. So you're looking at uh, a compound uh, loading scenario where there's more than one thing going on. So there may be axial force, which is basically directly up and down in line with the spine, or torque, which is force over distance, um, or shear force. Uh, and so it's the weight of the rider's torso that's actually loading the neck. Uh, and once the helmet hits the ground and then initially escapes, which is quite an important component of uh, mitigating neck injuries. The, the helmet mustn't be restrained completely. It must be allowed to escape initially. But after that initial escape, if it can come into contact with a platform and the weight and, and the inertia of the torso can be redirected via the neck brace uh, to other body structures and bypassing the neck, you can theoretically reduce neck injuries. So even... If you can reduce the force quantum by 15 to 20%, it's almost like a high jump. We know that uh, looking at various forces, let's just choose one uh, axial force, which is the, the vertical force up and down the spine. It requires about 4,000, 4,500 newtons, equivalent uh, to about 400 or 450 kilograms of loading to cause an injury. So if we reduce, uh, if we re remove 20% of that force or 900 uh, newtons, uh, the, the risk of injury goes down dramatically. It's almost like jumping over a high jump. You know, if you put the pole up 20% higher than the last jump, very few people are going to get over that, uh, over that uh, obstacle. And so what we see by reducing the quantum of force going through the neck, unloading it onto this uh, alternative load path, there's a significant reduction in neck injuries as a result. So in the beginning, uh, it wasn't a clinical study. It was a lab-based study where we showed using sophisticated hybrid three dummies, you know, these crash test dummies that, you, um, uh, that, that are often uh, uh, seen on, on TV, whether they are uh, in vehicle or on motorcycle uh, or very, uh, various other mythbuster, you know, um, uh, exercises where they, they're loading or unloading the, the, uh, the neck in an impact. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we used these dummies and we instrumented it in a very sophisticated way. We had lots of load cells, upper neck, lower neck, collarbones, in fact, ribs, brain, all uh, instrumented. We then did a lot of testing uh, in, in various scenarios where we tried to load the neck in a way that would produce an injury. So all the clinical papers on how much force it requires to actually produce a, a clinical fracture. And then we, we uh, tested the, 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 the neck and, and uh, hung the dummy upside down and swung it and do, did various tests to achieve the sort of force that was required to produce an injury. Once we decided on a protocol for the testing, we then introduced the neck brace. So with and without or apples and apples comparison, there was a significant reduction in neck forces with a neck brace. Um, and so that was really the thesis that an alternative load path could cause a reduction uh, in, in neck forces. 
Uh, and of course, subsequently, that's been borne out in clinical data. What sort of reductions are we talking about? Is, is it the kind of reductions that we see with automobiles with wearing seatbelts versus not? So interestingly enough, um, some of the data, for example, the EMS action sports study that showed that you almost 90% more likely to break your neck with, uh, with, uh, without a neck brace uh, versus with a neck brace is actually slightly better than, than the data from a seatbelt. So uh, the data we're seeing uh, and the, the risk of, of neck injury mit- mitigation um, is in some instances actually greater than what you're seeing in modern cars with seatbelts. So you're saying that the seatbelt, which in, in many countries you're forced to wear by law for your own safety, is actually not making as much reduction theoretically as what the Liat neck brace is? So, I mean, you know, like all things, how long is a piece of string? You can never recreate all accident scenarios. So we we look at a spectrum of injuries uh, to do comparison, um, and we look at a a spectrum of automobile um, accidents. But what is is quite clear in the literature is that there are certain thresholds for injuries. In other words, you know, you may have an an impact where there's 9,000 newtons of force that's going through the neck, in which case reducing it by 20% is not going to reduce the injury. So that's an outlier and that person's still going to have a neck injury. But for the majority of threshold injuries where if you had a mitigation strategy in place, be it a seatbelt or a, a neck brace, by reducing the force by 20%, you can see a dramatic increase in in um, in neck injury mitigation. And the same with um, accident scenarios in cars. Um, Seatbelts, I don't have the the accurate statistic in front of me, uh, but seatbelts have definitely improved um, uh, the the survivability of car accidents. And the addition of a seatbelt and uh, airbags uh, make it even better. And if you have curtain airbags, six airbags instead of one, and a seatbelt and a self-aligning head restraint, then the, the, the scenario uh, becomes even more uh, safe. Um, I think one of the goals of Volvo from 2021, if I'm not mistaken, is that they want to have no fatalities in passenger vehicles. That's a very bold statement. Mm. But uh, what they're trying to achieve is, is add all these safety features. Now, of course, in a motorcycle, um, you know, we've seen airbag uh, use on big tourers, uh, where, the, where the, the airbag is actually incorporated onto the vehicle. And if you're unlucky enough to T-bone a car, uh, this airbag deploys and you hit the airbag rather than hitting the car. But of course, if you're on a motocross track um, and uh, you don't have the luxury of that sort of um, physical size and, and airbag capacity. Also, of course, remember if you're on a motocross track or you're, you're uh, riding the Dakar or you're doing long distance rides, if you drop your bike once and twice and the airbag deploys, that's the end uh, of your protection. You then go from some protection to zero protection. Whereas the advantage of the neck brace is it's always in the right place at the right time. It's a a physical uh, mitigation strategy uh, that's always in the right place at the right time. Can you describe the neck brace? So the neck brace is a is, as I've mentioned now previously, what we what we call an alternative load path technology. So it's a rigid platform that sits on your chest, on your shoulders, and and uh, travels down your spine to about C6 to, um, T6 to T8 uh, and, and offers a platform that mirrors the underside of the helmet. Uh, 
So if the helmet is forced down in flexion, in other words, the head going forwards, or forced down in extension where the head goes backwards, the helmet will come into contact with the neck brace. So in the unbraced scenario, 100% of the force that is applied to the head is seen by the neck. However, with a neck brace in place, if the helmet touches the neck brace, some of the force goes from the ground to the helmet and directly onto the neck brace and other body structures and bypasses the neck. And this bypassing of the neck by a, by a percentage, and let's call it 20%, is enough to reduce the overall force going through your neck. And as we've seen, that's enough to reduce the vast majority of neck injuries. So is it spreading the, the force out that, that is applied to your head, uh, you know, in a get off or is it limiting the neck movement or both? Uh, the, the, the limiting of neck movement is almost secondary, you know, a well-adjusted neck brace, uh, you, you, you don't know you've got it on, uh, you don't feel it unless you, you really, you know, case a jump or, or or do something where you've got an extreme range of movement. So a well-adjusted neck brace, you don't, you don't feel. It's only when it's an, at the extreme of movement where there's an interaction with, with the neck brace. So the primary uh, uh, injury mitigation strategy is not by limiting the range of movement, but it's by offering a platform to interact with the helmet in order to create this alternative load path and disperse energy that would have gone all through your neck to other body, other body structures like your shoulders, your chest and your back. We're going to take just a short break while I tell you about a couple of things, but stick around. We've got a lot more coming up. Stay with us. Moto Camp Nerd. It's a motorcycle camping store. Actually, they call it the motorcycle camping store because they say it's the only one of its kind, and I haven't come across this either. Moto Camp Nerd. It's the brainchild of Ben and Mary Williams from Trinity, North Carolina. And what they have here is a a store that focuses 100% on motorcycle camping, supplying us riders with ride-quality camping gear. And guess what? They just opened a new store in Archdale, North Carolina, near Trinity. This would make a good ride destination you know, on your route or maybe just a place to go to. Anyway, they, they, they do this, um, this, this supplying us with gear by, by stocking the gear. They don't do drop shipping. They've got gear that suits motorcycle riding. So they choose gear that packs small and works well for us riders. They're authorized dealers for brands like Nemo, Big Agnes, Sea to Summit, and Ben & Mary, the owners, they're, they're motorcycle campers themselves. So you're, when you're dealing with Moto Camp Nerd, you're dealing with riders that care very much about what they're doing, a husband and wife team. And, you know, this could solve a lot of dilemmas be, uh, on deciding on gear because we hear questions like this all the time. You know, and I'm sure you have too. You know, which, tent, which tent is best suited for motorcycle camping? Which sleeping bag is? Well, here you've got people who've tried it and specialized, make it their, their, their vocation to understand what is needed for motorcycle camping gear and supplying you with that gear. Motocampnerd.com is a website. You're only going to find gear here that suits motorcycle camping and Ben and Mary there to help with your questions. So if you have a question, can't decide, just shoot them an email and they said they're happy to help sort you out. Motocampnerd.com and anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Go light, go fast, go far with Giant Loop. 
Giant Loop is inspired by years of personal riding experiences and feedback gathered from riders across the globe. They design products for travel, discovery, and exploration. And, and they believe that lighter and simpler is better. How we ride as motorcyclists, they feel, shouldn't be dictated by what's strapped to our vehicles. Riding's just plain more fun when unnecessary weight and bulk are removed. I don't think anyone can argue with that. And they focus on what's needed to serve the product's mission. I like this. No stra- no extra straps, no extra buckles, no everything in the kitchen sink designs. Instead, each product is purpose-built to enhance the riding experience for those who want a modular and customizable packing system that's stable, durable, uh, intuitive, and lightweight. So um, discover a whole new world of uh, adventure with intuitive, functional, durable gear that requires little more than sort of plug-and-play set up with it. Go light, go fast, go far with Giant Loop. The website is giantloopmoto.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Giantloopmoto.com. Does this give you the ability to to ride harder, faster, or or what are we gaining? So uh, that's an interesting question. I think I think there are, there are a number of points. Uh, the first is, um, you know, if you have confidence, you should be able to ride better. Um, also, if you've worn a neck brace and you take it off, everybody describes this feeling of being naked. So so obviously, uh, those riders are experiencing some form of comfort and reassurance by having a neck brace uh, on. Um, and so I think it, it, it changes your, your perception of, of, uh, of, uh, you know, of your vulnerability to, to, to injuries. Also, if, uh, if you look at you know, an athlete's career, we're not talking about uh, somebody has to go to work uh, on a Monday morning, in which case it's really important not to get injured. But if you look at the career risk of an injury, uh, whether it be a neck injury or a collarbone injury, which I'll talk about now, um, if you're often uh, if, if you're able to mitigate that in some way, uh, and, and you know you're more likely to to win the season because you're not out with injuries, you are more likely to earn your earning potential for the season because you're not being injured. Um, you know, one of the most common injuries in motorcycle riding is collarbones. Uh, and it stands to reason because the collarbone is is like one of the legs of a tripod, uh, but it's the weakest leg. It's the one that will fracture first. Uh, collarbone heals relatively quickly. If you were to break your shoulder joint or your your humerus or your scapula or the actual joint, uh, the glenohumeral humeral joint, that is a very long recovery period. Whereas a collarbone traditionally uh, will heal much quicker than the rest of the bones. So, so it's so sacrificial. It's, 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 it's sacrificial. It's like having a crumple zone in the car. Right. It's actually a really good design feature for humans. Um, but there are three ways in which you commonly break your collarbone, and uh, that's a fallen and outstretched arm. Uh, so there you run the risk of a scaphoid fracture or an arm fracture. But what often happens is a fallen and outstretched arm transmits the force up into your shoulder and the collarbone fractures. The second way a collarbone can fracture is by falling directly on your shoulder where the collarbone is sacrificial. And the third way is if your head 
moves to the one side, the helmet rim can strike the collarbone and cause a fracture. Now, we thought that the latter was the most uncommon uh, and rarely occurred. One of the design features in the, in the brace is to offer what we call a clavicle relief area. So there's a cutout on the underside of the brace that protects the collarbone. So if the top platform is, is uh, struck by the helmet, uh, the, the collarbone is shielded. And what was quite surprising to us when we looked at the EMS Action Sports Study where almost 10 years, almost 10,000 riders, half roughly with and without a neck brace on, your chance of breaking your collarbone was 45% higher if you weren't wearing a neck brace. And from that, we conclude that actually helmet rim strikes or collarbones are much more common. Mm. We were often accused in the beginning of the neck brace causing collarbone injuries because people weren't breaking their necks, but they were breaking their collarbones. But of course, it's, it's such a common injury. Um, if you're saving neck injuries, you're going to see a lot of collarbone injuries because they just are much more common. Um, but it's until this study uh, that really the clinical efficacy and, and how many collarbone injuries were being broken by helmet rim strikes became evident. Our, our um, crash test dummy in the lab has an instrumented collarbone. So we were never able to demonstrate increased forces on the collarbone uh, in lab testing. But it became, uh, you know, sort of an, an urban legend that, that uh, you know, the brace breaks collarbones. And in fact, now we've proven, proven the opposite. Uh, it actually reduces collarbone injuries. So the the um, the thought process that it was the collar, that it was a neck brace rather, that was this breaking the collarbone, that comes from the fact that they've had to get off, they broke their collarbone, but had they not had the neck brace on, they would have been dealing with something much more substantial and the collarbone would have been an afterthought, just like, oh yeah, and you also broke your but collarbone, is that it? Potentially, absolutely. Uh, another interesting fact is that if you look at uh, clavicle injuries uh, where, where you've had a helmet rim strike, uh, often with an, a fallen outstretched arm or directly onto the shoulder, you have an, an upward-facing fracture, whereas if you have a helmet rim strike, uh, it's a downward-facing collarbone fracture. So then you ask the rider, well, you've, you've clearly fallen off on the left-hand side. Uh, you know, your, your, your kit is grazed, your helmet is grazed. Uh, which side collarbone did you break? And they said, well, my left. Well, that can't be the neck brace then because the neck brace uh, shielded the helmet being struck on the left-hand side from moving to the right-hand side, and it would have struck the right-hand side of the brace, not the left. So collarbone injuries on the opposite side of the fall. Uh, and once you look at that uh, dynamic, it's often clear that actually this collarbone injury was going to happen regardless. So you're saying is in, in a lot of those cases, it's the helmet itself breaking our collarbone. Well, 45% uh, increase in collarbone injuries with, um, without a neck brace versus with a neck brace, which is significantly higher than we had uh, initially thought it would be. But there's no way to, to show that, that, you know, when it, when you get a broken collarbone, there's no way to look at that and say, oh, this was struck by the helmet as opposed to this was because you had your arm outstretched and, and it exceeded the, the ability of the bone to take the force? Um, on x-ray, uh, an orthopod will, will often speculate the, the mechanism of uh, causation of the fracture. So a downward going fracture, uh, sort of, you know, uh, mid shaft of the clavicle where the helmet rim is, uh, may well be caused by a, um, a helmet rim strike, uh, whereas uh, a fracture that's placed 
either medially or laterally, sort of closer to the midline or further closer to the shoulder uh, and is upward going, is uh, more likely to be caused by a direct fall into the shoulder. I would think if this is a, this is a case and it was brought to, brought to light, like, as it was, that helmet manufacturers would look at this and say, okay, well, what do we have to do to try and mitigate this break? Yeah, that, that's a very good point. Um, you know, the problem with, with helmets uh, is that it's a very short distance to accelerate and then decelerate against something. Um, and if you look at the, the EPS layer in the helmet, you're looking at 25 millimeters uh, of, of potential space that you have to absorb an impact. So whether the, the edge of a helmet uh, could be made to, to be collarbone safe um, I, I think you would have to quite dramatically change uh, the style of helmets and you would probably have to use something quite smart like non-Newtonian materials in the collarbone area to, to mitigate against collarbone injuries. Of course, the, easy, the easiest way is to, to put on a neck brace. And, and the manufacturers, of course, I mean, they could have been supplying a neck bra- brace with their helmet. Absolutely. I mean, you know, obviously as a, as a manufacturer, uh, we, we, we often uh, offered package deals and, and we've ensured that our helmets and our neck braces are, are work well together and are compatible. When you're wearing a neck brace and you're out for a ride, do you, you know, if you have a get off or something, do you, do you hear people say, oh, wow, good thing I was wearing my neck brace? Or is it something that sort of saves you and then doesn't get any, any sort of credit for it, I guess you could say? We get a lot of testimonials. You know, a lot of people uh, contact us and and sort of thank us for for what the neck brace did. You know, I, I often still have goosebump moments. Now I know, you know, f- from a scientific perspective, it's very difficult often to prove or disprove in a in a particular scenario whether the neck brace would have uh, uh, limited or or prevented an injury. Uh, but we certainly have a huge amount of fan mail. What we do, what we used to do in the beginning. Um, when we were seeing in the early days falls in a way that we we hadn't seen before, uh, we we had a, a an accident uh, database, an accident library as we called it, which we still use today. Where if somebody has a significant injury with or without a neck brace on, uh, or a significant fall without an injury with and without a neck brace on, we like to hear about it. Like to try and understand the impact dynamics and how much force that brace actually withstood if they were wearing one. So uh, in the early days, we did a lot of accident reconstruction. And the way we did it is we took our library and we took damaged braces. Uh, And often, you know, the, the, the brace is designed to fail at a certain point to limit other injuries. So the frontal collapse, uh, the thoracic member will collapse way before sternal or, or thoracic spine injuries will occur. And often we'd see a brace that was broken, and sometimes we'd see a brace that was broken in an atypical way. And so what we have is a, a, a rig with a jig uh, where we mounted the brace in, in some unusual ways, and we had some unusual anvils to try and take a range of new braces and break them in exactly the same way as the brace that we'd seen had broken. And then we could extrapolate how much force and what the trajectory of that force was to cause that kind of fracture. And that's allowed us to have a better understanding of the kind of loading dynamics of the neck braces uh, and where a neck brace is, is, is effective. Um, and so after all of these years and after a lot of neck braces have been sold, um, you know, our, our understanding of, of neck brace loading is, is, is 
is pretty good now. Um, so we don't do as much accident reconstruction as we used to. What we do uh, try and achieve is that the, the neck braces, whether you're buying a 3.5 or a 6.5, all offer very similar injury mitigation. There may be different weights and different adjustability and different finishes and materials, but they all function in pretty much the same way. The, the neck brace that you have now, is it the same as the original one that you came up with? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> I sometimes look at the, those original neck braces and, and they seem very archaic. Um, uh, no, they're, they're quite different. I mean, they used to be quite chunky and, uh, and heavy and, um, and uh, non-adjustable, uh, sort of, to, to use the word, clunky in the beginning. Uh, and now they're, they're really sort of more ergonomic, uh, fit your body better uh, and, are, and are much easier to use. Um, so they have evolved, but the principle uh, hasn't changed. The, 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 the reason they work hasn't changed. The, the alternative low-path technology hasn't changed. What sort of reduction in, in uh, risk of injury could someone enjoy by wearing it? Like if you put it on, how much safer are you? Well, you know, uh, it, it looking, looking at uh, the biggest clinical t- uh, trial that's been done, you, you know, you, you're 90% more likely to be injured without a neck brace than with one. 90%? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a significant difference. Um, I'm actually... Uh, you know, so we, we've talked about uh, the reduction in neck injuries, the reduction in collarbone injuries. Um, I'm working on a big project now um, uh, and on a PhD at the moment uh, to look at the, the uh, risk of brain injury with and without a neck brace, uh, which I'm hoping to show um, in the not too, uh, too, uh, too distant future um, with a, with a, a well peer-reviewed and scrutinized approach that in fact the neck brace will reduce brain injury too. How is that? Well, if you look at the way the, the brain is injured, um, you, you hit an, obst- uh, an obstacle uh, and if we're talking about a motorcycle, a fall over the handlebars, the head hits the ground and that's where obviously the primary loading happens and where the, the helmet is either going to make a significant difference or not. But after that primary loading, uh, the head moves. So it decelerates very suddenly and then accelerates relative to the torso. So what is the neck brace doing? It's limiting, uh, although that wasn't the primary feature by, by being an alternative load path. As soon as the helmet comes into contact with the, the, the neck brace, it's limiting head excursion. What we've seen in lab testing is just how far the, the head will actually move when loaded. So if you impact the head, um, you'll almost imprint the back of the head on the back or the forehead in a young person onto the chest. That's how much flexion and extension there is uh, in an unbraced uh, example. So the, so the bounce, at, so in other words, you're hitting, the, you're hitting the, like say ground, it bounces back. Correct. So, so you would call it head, head whip, whiplash, mm-hmm. um, secondary head movement. So after the primary impact, which is where the helmet offers the majority of protection, uh, there is subsequent head movement. And that subsequent acceleration and then deceleration against the chest or against the back or against an obstacle in your surrounds, uh, that acceleration has a secondary deceleration. And then the head may continue to move and reverberate and have tertiary and quaternary bounces and movement. Now, the thing about uh, brain injury is being clearly documented is that 
the primary uh, insult makes the brain more susceptible to a secondary insult. So if you look at boxing, uh, where a lot of little jabs to the head, inverted commas, warms up the player or, or um, gets him ready for the big blow, and it makes that big blow more effective, is that repetitive, and, and, and there, there, are some, there are many scientific studies to show this, that repetitive impacts or insults to the brain are, are, are cumulative. So you may, in fact, and if you look at American football, which is a really interesting scenario where they often have subclinical brain impacts. In other words, they get a little bit dazed, but they don't have a full bone concussion. They're able to continue playing, so they do continue playing, and this goes on for a career. And at the end of the career, they have chronic degenerative brain conditions. Uh, and uh, this has been very clearly demonstrated in American football, uh, that repetitive low-speed impacts are actually as dangerous as a significant impact and a significant concussion. So what we're looking at in this scenario with the neck brace is reducing the secondary and tertiary head movement, uh, limiting the amount of acceleration and therefore deceleration that head is required after the primary impact. Uh, and we believe that we can show that actually um, th there's a tremendous sa saving in brain energy uh, by doing this uh, and impact uh, criteria. So th th there are lots of composite formulas that are used to understand the risk of a brain injury. And so we'll be using those to, to demonstrate that, in fact, uh, brain injuries are, are going to be less likely with a neck brace on. And I'm hoping to be able to uh, uh, categorically prove that in the, in the next uh, short while. You said about American football, how they're, they're getting small uh, injuries and they're cumulative. Do they recover for those from the, that at all? Is that, is that a permanent piece of damage once you get that? So, um, you know, some players are, are, are more susceptible genetically to, to repeated head impacts. The quantum, uh, uh, the duration of impact, uh, this is actually a very interesting field. So, so, so one of the uh, determinants of long-term damage is, is a few things. You can have a very high velocity impact over a very short period of time, and you actually cope better with that than a slightly lower impact velocity, but over a prolonged period of time. So instead of, you know, 10 milliseconds, it's, it's over 30 or 40 milliseconds. Um, it's, it's actually worse for your brain. And so you may not have these immediate manifestations, but the chronic disease process is significant. Um, and uh, if you look at the, um, the, the autopsies on, a, on professional level, uh, uh, American football players who've, who've died for whatever reason, a large degree of them are showing uh, chronic de degenerative changes in the brain. I mean, there, there are these phenomena of you know, CTE, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, where, where it's, it's, it's a syndrome and there, there are findings to be had. Uh, but, you, you know, these chronic degenerative brain uh, conditions are much more common in repetitive head imp impacts like American football. Now, that hasn't been shown to be the case, probably because it hasn't been studied. If you look at a, you know, a downhill um, mountain bike rider or a professional motocross rider over their career, how many times they bang their heads, what the cumulative result is. Um and that's that's a subject for for further you know clinical investigation in the future. 
but uh, reason stands that if uh, we're seeing these degenerative changes in uh, in American football after repetitive impacts, there there must be some secreted to having repetitive impacts. You know, whether you're on a bicycle or a motorcycle. Back when you were looking to find a way to protect someone's neck when they're riding a motorcycle, you said you didn't plan on making it into a company. You, you didn't, that wasn't your vision? <laughs> no, I think my plan was still to return to medicine. And in fact, um, uh, the department in which I worked, um, you know, when they were out on conference, I used to go back in locum so, so they could have a night off at a conference. Um, you know, I, I love medicine and uh, I was very happy in my surgical discipline uh, in neurosurgery, but it wasn't meant to be. There was, the, the, there was a different plan for me and, um, and uh, you know, I think the neck brace is one example of a different approach uh, to, to impact and injury mitigation. But if you look at uh, the turbans and our helmets, uh, the single-sided knee brace, uh, the flex lock boot, uh, there, there, uh, there are a number of uh, innovations that we have produced in safety apparel that are uh, pr- primarily because we looked at the problem, not what everybody else was doing. I'll give you a simple example, and it's one that uh, of a product that we don't sell Massive amounts of it's not not like helmets or boots, but we we do sell, sell a surprising uh, surprisingly larger number than we originally anticipated, and that's a shoulder brace. So you know, often riders uh, will dislocate their shoulders, uh, and there's a region of 110 percent re-dislocation rate in the first year after your injury. So in other words. If you dislocate your shoulder today, the next year you're going to dislocate your shoulder again. And of course, what that means for riders is that uh, if uh, the most typical, what we call a bank card lesion, where you actually break off a piece of uh, the cup of the shoulder joint and it has to be repaired, if you're going to have a bank card repair, you're going to be off for months. So uh, we looked at what was being done to brace shoulders because that is what's prescribed by orthopods and physiotherapists is, you know, to, to make your, your shoulder feel less vulnerable uh, to re-dislocation where a shoulder brace. So if we looked at the entire spectrum of shoulder braces that were on the market, what they all do is they pull the shoulder down and in closer to your chest. But surprise, surprise, 80%, if not more, of shoulder dislocations are from a blow from behind where the shoulder or the humerus is actually forced down and out. So what we're doing by putting braces on people is actually the same mechanism that caused the injury in the first place. So what we did is we found a way to strap the shoulder where it goes up and back. Very simple. Uh, And all of a sudden, people didn't re-dislocate their shoulders. And it allowed people, uh, athletes from from, uh, uh, netball players to, um, to, to bicycle riders, uh, particularly when they were, weren't on, uh, because it's not necessarily when they are practicing their sport that they redislocate. They redislocate at really odd times, you know, just turning around to pick up something. So we managed to to reduce that redislocation rate uh, by producing something was completely the antithesis of what the rest of the market was doing, because we looked and studied the problem, uh, and that's what I think we pride ourselves with at Leeds. Um, we we solve problems by looking at, uh, at what the industry needs and what the problem is. Uh, we, we're sure we do, um, you know, newer and prettier uh, products every year, hopefully, 
but that's not the mainstay of our of our innovation. You know, bold new graphics is not the mainstay of our innovation. It's it's looking for ways to really make a difference. It's always a shame when I, when I hear. I think it is when you hear a doctor that that is no longer practicing. They they do something else. I, mean, I feel like we lose something as as a society, as a community. But in this case, we've um, us motorcyclists, other parts of the the community have actually gained um, incredible things by this. So I mean, this is a this is a win for us having you do this. But you you're not just then just by your description there of the shoulder brace. You're not just focused on the neck brace. So are you constantly constantly looking at ways of making riding safer? Um, absolutely, Jim, and, and thanks for the words. Yes, um, I, I, I would have to go back and look at my list of, of uh, just the sheer quantum of projects I'm, I'm working on at the moment. I'm fortunate enough now to have a really good uh, team at Lietz, a really good management team, uh, fantastic CEO, and that allows me to, to spend time on Blue Sky thinking and Blue Sky innovation. And so we're constantly trying to make sports safer. And by looking at data and applying our minds and uh, proposing a hypothesis and testing that hypothesis uh, before launching a product, uh, we really are trying to make the sport safer. And by making the sport safer, more people will participate. Um, now, I'm certainly finding, you know, when you get to, to, to 50, you don't want to um, fall out of bed uh, having to swallow pain pills every day. You, mm-hmm. you know, you often need to go to, to work the next day. And if in some way we can make riding safer, then, uh, you know, I'm all for it and allow you to, to go out there and enjoy your sport. You mentioned about the the injury, the shoulder dislocation, and I, would, I just want to ask you about that. You said there's the the, the chance of re injury, re dislocation the next year. I think you said 110 percent in the in the next 12 months. Why is that, and why does it reduce after that? Um, typically, a, a shoulder dislocation actually breaks off a lip of the shoulder joint, mm-hmm. so we call it the glenohumeral uh, joint, um, and. Uh, so, so that lip that's broken off is a permanent anatomical defect, which uh, assure that you know there's ligamentous and muscle injury, and then there's rehabilitation and muscle strengthening. But you're left with this rim of a disc of a, of a joint that's missing, uh, and so it just is easier for that joint to to re-dislocate forever. Then, uh, not not just for the year. For, for, forever, for sure. Um, and, and, and the, the, the only real way to treat that is to, to correct the, the, uh, abnormal anatomy. Um, and, uh, you know, that, but that takes you out of circulation and it's, uh, not an insignificant, uh, operation and there's, there's morbidity attached and, and, uh, you know, recovery time. What rider do you think should be wearing a neck brace? Um, you know, uh, the, the easy answer is all of them. Uh, but if you have to look at um, where the majority of uh, uh, injuries occur, you know, if you look at MotoGP, for example, neck injuries are incredibly uncommon. And the rationale uh, for that is that when a rider falls, they typically slide. Mm, yeah. So they just they slide and they keep on sliding and eventually they dissipate energy and the impact is spread over a very long period of time. If you fall off a horse, for example, in a sand arena, and the horse is not going very fast. You're falling from a height straight into sand. And what that means is that the head impacts the sand and the torso loads the neck for a prolonged period of time. There's no slide. The sand is, in fact, capturing the head uh, and the torso is 
uh, you know, is, is uh, prolonging the exposure of the neck to that impact. So there are two really uh, totally different scenarios. The one is where you slide and you dissipate the energy over a very long period of time, whereas the other scenario is the energy is concentrated for a long period of time on the neck. So riding in sand, riding off-road, uh, relatively low speed, uh, uh, where if your head stops, it stops suddenly and doesn't slide. Uh, those are scenarios where uh, a neck brace is most effective. So we're safer if we ride faster. You're safer <laughs> from a neck brace perspective. If you ride faster on a slippery surface like, a, like asphalt, and you don't have cars. With no, with no other <laughs> objects around. Yeah, exactly. That's what, was, that's what I was thinking. Chris, w- w- how do air vests fit into this? So, you know, that's another interesting question. Air vests have been around for a very long period of time. I mean, they've been around for 20, 20 plus years. And they've gained some popularity now, I think, because people are, um, uh, are looking for something that's is going to cushion them and cocoon them, and and it's you know it's it's something additional that you can wear. Uh, Equestrian riders have been wearing um, air vests for a long period of twi- time, uh, with some advantages and, and some distinct disadvantages. So, if you look at the evolution of of airbags, first of all, they were single cartridge and they were mechanically deployed. So you clip something onto the horse or the motorcycle, and if you fell off and pulled on that lanyard, it would deploy the airbag. Um, And in that scenario, a well-designed airbag, and not a lot of them are well-designed, would um, offer the right helmet to airbag gap, and you could mitigate brain injuries, you could mitigate neck injuries, you could mitigate torso injuries. Some of the disadvantages, however, are that you, you, um, you increase the size of the torso dramatically. So instead of sliding now, you're more likely to tumble, once an airbag uh, FS has gone off, it's the, actually the deflation against the airbag that absorbs the energy. So airbags deploy very quickly and then they deflate. So if you are going tumbling down the road, uh, you may tumble more because of the, the change in, in, in body size um, and you may be protected by the airbag and the primary impact, but your protection decreases. Now, if you look at a motocross race or, um, you know, the Dakar, where they're riding with uh, sophisticated algorithms that deploy uh, the air vest, uh, and they've got more than one bottle, but you're dropping your bike 10 times in a, in a day, you end up with no protection. So uh, air vests uh, definitely, if designed correctly, offer protection. But there are lots of disadvantages to airbags. Um, and that's why... At the moment, Liet is, is doesn't have an airbag, is because we believe that a physical uh, protection element like the neck brace that's always in the right place at the right time, and even through a sequence of of, uh, of through an accident sequence is there to protect you, uh, is better for your your head and neck. Um, we of course seen um, some quite significant developments in airbags. The the the, the most current and, and uh, significant airbags have been the sophisticated uh, algorithms that are, you see in MotoGP now, where uh, the airbags deploy um, at the right time and there's no lanyard. It's all computer ge- generated. It's, they're using accelerometers and gyroscopes to predict whether an accident is likely to to happen or not. 
Um, I can't remember the rider. I'm not sure if it was Vinales on his uh, on his Yamaha two years ago, who, after winning a race, slapped the tank and the airbag went off. Uh, of course, it's not conducive to entering a corner when you've got an airbag deployed. Mm. So, you know, it should deploy at the right time. It shouldn't deploy at the wrong time. Uh, it should uh, protect you on your primary impact and subsequent impacts. So, you know, I think if if the likelihood of uh, having impact and then stopping riding, an air, air vest has a, has a benefit if it's designed correctly. Uh, but if you're going to fall multiple times potentially in a day, uh, then, you know, maybe it's not the best solution. We did an episode not long ago on air, airbags, uh, air, air vests. And I have a climb uh, in in motion uh, air vest, and, and it's it has a computer controlled system, just like you're talking about now. Now there's different modes you can set it on as well, and one of them is the adventure mode. But um, what I do notice is what, with this is is that at, when you put it on adventure mode at lower speeds, it doesn't deploy, which you wouldn't want it to. I mean, at the cost of these okay. canisters, etc., you wouldn't want it to. But that leaves us in that scenario with no protection whatsoever. Then. One of, one of the riders who helped us uh, test the neck brace right in the beginning really wanted to help us because he broke C3, C4, C5 in the parking lot in first gear, one hand on the handlebar, holding his helmet, riding from where his trailer was to where the entrance to the track was at the motocross track. First gear in idle. That's how fast he was going when he broke his neck. Mm. So, um, you know, the, the, the scenario I described is the worst scenario for a, for, for a neck injury is on falling off a horse relatively low speed into a soft medium. Um, that is where the, the, the neck is loaded maximally and for a prolonged period of time. Um, but, you know, in adventure mode, uh, it makes sense to, to mitigate some of those early deployments because otherwise it would be going off nonstop. Uh, and would become, you know, uh, unrideable. Uh, and so their, their uh, thesis is to protect you from, you know, w one significant big off. Uh, whereas if, you know, if you're riding casually as an adventure rider, is when you're probably going to stop riding after that big off. Um, so I guess that's their rationale. So when you're riding an adventure bike, for instance, at low speeds, you'd be better off theoretically then with the neck brace as opposed to the air vest. Absolutely, and uh, you know, much to our disdain, the the uh, the organisers of the Dakar uh, introduced uh, air, air vests as compulsory items in the Dakar two years ago, mm -hmm. which of course means you can't wear a neck brace. So uh, it's either or; it's one or the other. It's either or because you just you can't. They don't physically integrate, uh, and. Uh, and so one of our athletes who was a neck brace sponsored athlete uh, uh, year one broke his neck wearing an air vest. Uh, and I said to them, this is going to happen. Uh, you know, we'd gone through almost 15 years with a neck brace of no neck injuries in the Dakar, whereas previously there was one to two deaths a year in the Dakar. And that's why uh, the, the, the neck brace was introduced to the Dakar. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, whether it's com compelling commercial reasons, uh, whether they've got research data that I haven't seen, uh, I'm not sure the rationale for, for design uh, and implementation, well, requirement of implementation of, uh, of air vests in the Dakar. But you've got to be very careful the impact biomechanics is when you introduce something that you don't cause something else to happen as a result of it. You know, like um, uh, 
uh, you know, in medicine, do no harm. You've got to be very careful that you, you, you're thinking through all the different scenarios when you introduce a safety product. And we've developed some products that we think uh, in certain scenarios will work extremely well at producing, reducing injuries. However, the risk of producing other injuries, unforeseen injuries, is too, too high to, to warrant its introduction. So we've canned those products. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you've got to have a balanced approach and, and really un- understand what it is you're trying to do and what you, can, what, uh, you may be doing as a result of uh, employing a strategy to reduce injuries. Is there any thought to a hybrid design, part airbag, um, part neck brace? I, I think I think that's probably a natural progression in, in the future that you'll you'll see a combination of products, uh, and also offering uh, offering riders uh, more choice uh, and, and to tailor make the protection to what they're really looking for. You know, like you're describing uh, in an emotion being able to switch off uh, in adventure mode those lower speed impacts. Um, uh, I, th- I think the exciting, uh, the exciting answer to your question is there's there's still a lot of development work that uh, that can make riders safer in the future. Chris, that was a lot of fun to to sit down and talk with you. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Great pleasure, Jim. I, I enjoyed your questions. I was speaking with Chris Liet from his home in South Africa. His website is liet.com. And of course, that link and some photos are in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Now, speaking with Chris got me to thinking about those of us riding with an air vest um, and, and thinking, do you carry a spare inflator with you? Because if you don't, like he said, you've, you've got no coverage, no safety coverage after that one get off or, or an accidental uh, inflation, you know, if it just went off by accident for some reason. And think about it, where, where will you get one on a trip? And you're going to have to ride somewhere to get one. So in my mind, it's so important that there should be a, a, a spot for your spare inflator built right into the jacket. Now, of course, you can store it anywhere. You can put it in your pocket or whatever on your jacket or even on your bike. But the important thing is spend a few bucks, get a spare air inflator, a spare air canister. Um, if not, more than one spare would be good. I got one thing that I want to mention to you, but right after that, we're going to be back and talk with that Dakar official that made the air vest mandatory for motorcyclists. Stay with us. When it comes to being connected to your bike, your foot pegs are paramount. Obviously, how could you ride without foot pegs? So if they're so important, why do motorcycles come from the factory with such wimpy pegs? Well, it comes down to economics. And to be fair, the average motorcycle that's sold, very few are lucky enough to get a serious rider as its owner, but you are a serious rider and you need serious foot pegs. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs ranging from the extra wide and large ADV1s and ADV2s on down to the core Enduros. Now, these pegs are all made from cast certified 17.4 stainless steel. They're all built in the USA and they're all warranted for life. And that warranty ought to give you a hint to the quality. They aren't just another foot peg. They're top-of-the-line pegs, yet affordable for the average rider. The website is imsproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com.
Dakar is considered the most difficult and grueling race in the world. It's also considered the most dangerous, pushing racers and machines to their limits and beyond in many cases. But it's also likely one of the most organized races in the world. And part of that organization is striving to constantly improve safety for its participants, particularly because it is known as such a dangerous race, which is why they say they made air vests mandatory for motorcyclists in 2021. And that's what we wanted to talk about, because if you wear an air vest, you can't wear a neck brace. And I've been told but that some riders, the Dakar riders, were really not pleased with that decision and being forced away from their neck brace. So we tracked down a guy in the, the, the So we tracked down the guy in the Dakar that is responsible for the rules and regulations that govern all racers, what they're required to wear and do and, and for their vehicles in the Dakar. The man behind the scenes, so to speak, Thierry Viardot. I am Thierry Viardot, living in France, in charge of all the technical aspects of Dakar for all categories, trucks, bikes, cars, and everything. And uh, personally, I, am, uh, I was professional rider a long time before in Enduro, and I, I still continue to ride bikes. So, and so I, I'm in charge of all safety and technical aspects. Thierry, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Happy to be with you. Now, you're saying you look after all the technical aspects. So what are you doing there? Are you helping set the rules or are you, say, a sort of a liaison between the, the, the riders and drivers and the rule book? Well, sure. You need, I need to listen riders and drivers. Then I write the rules. I suggest the rules. And then I present to Federation, huh? FIM for bike, FIA for car. And we work together, especially with FIA, because it's much more complicated than with bike. With bike, it's, uh, it's easy. Huh? Uh, I have just one or two people to talk about, and we decide, and we go, we decide the way. But sure, I, am, I was two days before in meeting with all manufacturers plus uh, FIM to decide the, the futures, uh, how to reduce the speed, how to increase the safety. So we have open discussion. Uh, then we will dis- we will need to decide something just to try to continue to increase safety. But it's a discussion uh, between everybody. But, but after, I would say at the end, uh, uh, I decide with David Castero, the boss of Dakar, we decide. And FIM follow us. Uh, we are really close with FIM. It's a really good relation. It's uh, quite easy. So, so you're the guy. I mean, really, it, it sort of all starts with you, and, and you're you're there through the whole process. Oh yes, yes, on technical, yes, sure, sure. Okay, sure, yeah. In 2021, you guys changed the the requirements, or one of the requirements that that I want to ask about for the riders. That was you started requiring an air vest. And with that air vest requirement, you, you sort of removed, I guess, the ability for them to wear neck braces. Can you talk about that that change? Oh, yes, yes, airbag was already existing uh, for road bikes and so on. So I had this idea of airbag and uh, just talked with David Castera, the Dakar director. He said, okay, Thierry, you can go. Uh, it's open. I will follow you so you can work on this. Not so easy in a COVID year, but uh, in eight months, I could find uh, at least three manufacturers who follow us. We we decided all the specifications we need. Huh? FIM was with us at the beginning, just at the beginning, but after I manage uh, myself uh, with all the airbag manufacturers to define the product in the time to see what was possible. 
and uh, we were never sure that we would succeed to have enough airbag for all riders in time, but in fact, we succeed. Then we had some big challenge with a replacement cartridge. How to manage this? Uh, where to leave this? Uh, do we put mandatory that the riders changes the cartridge by himself always? Uh, so uh, we still learn. It's uh, quite still a big subject for me. Huh? On Dakar, on each Dakar, I follow. I, I have on Dakar each manufacturer with me. They are on the Dakar, they follow, and every day uh, we exchange and uh, we check all the accidents or all the uh, explosion of airbag we have, uh, just to understand the condition and uh, why is it normal or not uh, to start to continue to improve the product. So uh, it works. It works well. We are happy. And uh, for sure, with the airbag, uh, you cannot uh, you cannot have uh, a net break anymore, hein, a net brace anymore. So yeah, so we, we we write in the regulation you need an airbag, but you cannot have anymore uh, the net brace system. But net brace has never been recognized as safety uh, component, never, never. And this is 50-50. Some, some riders, they, they like it, they want it. Some do not want at all. So it was not a big issue for us. So the, the decision to go to the air vest, it wasn't like you were saying, get rid of the neck brace because the neck brace wasn't required. So this was just a, the, really, it was, it was all about the introduction of the air vest, nothing to do with the neck brace. Oh, no, nothing to do, but uh, both are not compat- uh, compatible. Uh, it's, it's too much, uh, it would be too much force on the, uh, on the head and so on. So yeah, it was not compatible. So airbag is, uh, is airbag, like in MotoGP, like uh, on road. It, it comes in contact with the helmet and it's, uh, it keeps your head uh, straight. So it makes the job. So we, we don't need the Nick head brakes anymore with, uh, with airbag. And do you have, did you have research or, or some sort of data that showed that the airbag would actually make it safer for the riders in the Dakar? Bah, a lot, a lot with the manufacturers. Airbag manufacturers, they work since a long time with this first road. So we make um, a lot of analysis. Huh? Even during last Dakar, when we have some big crash, we have a full analysis of the crash. We have the speed, the number of G, how long, how long time the riders is flying, flying in the air, how many G the first impact, the second impact, then the, when it stops. We compare with the data of the bike because we have a retract system on the bike, so we have the speed as well of the bike, and we make a full, a full report with, with uh, airbag manufacturer. Uh, airbag manufacturers, they are there. They send the, we, de- we download the data of the airbag. And every night when we have a crash, uh, airbag uh, come back with the medical uh, staff. We get it and we make analysis. Uh, then a few hours after, we have the report. And, uh, and I collect during all Dakar all the airbag inflation for each maker. And we share everything with the makers. And just to see, by example, the sensibility of each maker, one maker, the airbag, uh, uh, we have much more percentage of inflation. That means it's more sensitive than another one. But we share. That means uh, if one uh, manufacturer thinks he can uh, make it more sensitive because the others are, he, he can do it. Huh? So, no, no, we, we have good relation and we, we progress. Uh, we always make progress on this. How much safer is the airbag over, well, I guess not wearing the airbag? Do you have a percentage? 
Yeah, it's you cannot talk on percentage, but uh, anyway, when you have some uh, riders coming uh, in the evening, uh, I had a big crash. I was in the air thinking that it's finished for me. Then, hop, I I touch the ground, nothing. I start again. So only few like this uh, is enough to make you happy and satisfied uh, of this. Huh? But it's it's really difficult. Huh? Even uh, on big injuries, you said uh, uh, without airbag, it would have been worse, not worse. You never know. And it's, it's difficult and needs to be careful and uh, need to be careful on this. But sure, many, many uh, crash, it, it helps a lot. Yeah, because sure. there's so many so, variables with every crash. It's it, you, you can't compare directly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are not the same, but uh, most of them, even professionals, uh, now they never ride without airbag. Never, never, never. So it's uh, uh, it's so safe and so good. Uh, uh, even a small crash, uh, sometimes it, ah, it was a small crash in the sand. Perhaps the airbag should not uh, should not uh, inflate. But sure, but the airbag does not know if you have a crash in sand or in stone. So it's better to inflate, and that's it. And uh, we made a new, a new progress this year. We have um, airbag inflate two times. That means we have two cartridge and uh, because it was a problem. Uh, one year before, we had big, in, uh, big, more than big injuries. One rider uh, died on Dakar. He had the first crash. The, the airbag makes the job, no problem. He starts again. He forgot to say at the refueling point that uh, he had the airbag uh, uh, inflation because in this case our guy of refueling they replace the cartridge immediately and he start again and he crash and unfortunately he died and perhaps we cannot say perhaps the airbag could save uh, save him but uh, this is why now we have two inflation by airbag but uh, you can inflate two times so it's easier with this long distance and the quantity uh, of crash we have just to give you some numbers, on last Dakar, in totality, we had 280 inflation. And um, concerning riders, uh, we have two riders who, who inflate 10 times on Dakar, 10 times. So wow. it's uh, incredible because 10 times you can uh, you can be, they were still there after 10 crash. And uh, 20% had no inflation at all, only 20%. Wow, all others add inflation. So the um the the ones that are are getting inflations and multiple inflations, they've they've only got those two cartridges. Are they carrying extras with them? So in the regulation, it's written that on the bike you need one set of cartridge, of spare one. Uh, that means a professional he crash, he never takes the time to replace. Some amateurs. He, he replaces, he, he, he does not care to lose five minutes to replace. Right. But when you have two cartridge, it's easier because in the middle of the stage, at the kilometers 250, we have the refueling points. They, they stop for 30 minutes, the time to drink, to eat, to refuel the bike. And at this place, we have a team uh, dedicated to airbag who check the airbag. They have spare cartridge free of charge and they replace. It takes three, 30 seconds. They replace uh, the cartridge of each riders to to start again and uh, the stage in safe condition. Do you uh, not so, do you not get data when a rider has a get off and and you would know immediately that they've had an inflation of, of the vest? So uh, this is something we have improved as well. We have lights. Uh, so at the beginning, the, the the first prototype, the lights position was not so good, not easy to see. 
Now uh, you can see the red light through the jersey of the riders. So now it's much, much better and much easier. So with the light, you see, uh, the light must be green. If it's red, that means uh, the card reach or another problem or something wrong. How will you know sort of what reduction, like how, how many years do you have to go through before you're going to know what sort of reduction in injuries the air vests have, have contributed to? Well, not this Dakar before, we had uh, 50% less injuries on the body. Uh, but we need, we always need to be careful. But sure, in fact, we, has, we had 50 less. We had much more on head. Uh, we had some more uh, on head injuries increase. Uh, it was not Dakar 22, it was Dakar 21. Uh, but uh, yeah, 47% less on, uh, on bodies. Incredible event. Uh, Terry, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I was speaking with Thierry Viardot, the Dakar technical manager from his office in France. And of course, the website for the Dakar is dakar.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you. Thank you very much for listening. Hey, you can help out the show if you'd like to. If you've listened to this and you thought you, it was interesting, you got something out of it, we'd love it if you share it with somebody, let somebody else know about the show. And also, if you could drop by iTunes or wherever it is you're getting your podcast and give us a five-star review, that will help other people find the show. We'd, we'd greatly appreciate that. And we really appreciate it if you drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on the support button, because this, this is built on a model of advertising and listener support. So um, have a look at what we've got there. Anything $10 or more gets you an Adventure Rider Radio sticker. Anything $50 or more gets you a mention on our Raw show. Um, by the way, we have the other show, Raw, comes out once a month. It's all on our website. Just drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com. Anyway, my name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs> <laughs>